Hello, you guys. What's up? Welcome back to another episode of Killer Instinct. If you're new here, hi, my name is Savannah and I am your host of Killer Instinct. Before we get started, make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button. That way you never miss an episode. We post weekly on the podcast and on YouTube every Wednesday. You're not going to want to miss it. Now, as you guys can tell by the title of today's episode, today we are talking about a very controversial case, and it is one that took the media by storm when it first happened, and as well as a lot more recently for reasons you will soon understand. Now, I'd like to think that I know my Killer Instinct listeners pretty well, and I feel like I do know where you guys are going to stand on it, but you never know. You might surprise me, and I'm very interested to hear what you guys think. So with that being said, today we are discussing the case of... Of Derek Roby. So let's jump right on into it. Derek Roby was born on October 2nd, 1988 to his parents, Doreen and Dale Roby. He had a younger brother named Dalton and the family lived in Savona, New York. Now, Derek himself was known as the unofficial mayor of Savona because even though he was only four years old, he would sit on the outside steps of his house and he would just wave at people walking by, say hi to them, and was just very friendly. Derek was a t-ball player and his dad, Dale, was the coach of his team. And overall, Derek was just known to be a happy child. He had blonde hair and bluish greenish eyes and you couldn't just help but smile when you saw Derek. And even now when looking at pictures and videos of him, he has this spirit about him that is so bright and welcoming and it just makes you smile. But at the same time, you also get a very harsh pit in your stomach once you realize what happened to Derek. So this all brings us to August 2nd, 1993, and Derek was four years old. He was just two months shy of his fifth birthday. Now at this time, he was attending a summer camp that was being held at this park that was right down the street from Derek's house. And this was a very well-known park in the community. It's where Derek had his t-ball games and practices, and so he was very familiar with it. And at this park is where Derek was also attending a summer camp that was going on at that time. Now, Derek's mom, Doreen, remembers that she never let Derek walk anywhere alone. Again, he was only four years old. He was about to be five. But on this particular day, Derek's younger brother, Dalton, was just being a little fussier than normal. He was crying and Doreen was understandably overwhelmed at the time. And Derek walked up to his mom and was like, mom, it is fine. I'm going to walk over to the park and everything's going to be okay. He was insisting her to just, you know, let him do this. Everything's going to be fine. And the park itself was only one block away from where the Robies lived. And it was also on the same side of the street. So Derek would never had to have crossed the street or done anything that could have potentially put him in danger. So they thought. But again, Derek had been to this park hundreds, if not thousands of times. He was always there. He was very familiar with it. And in 1993, this was a very small town. We're talking about a town of about a thousand people. So this was not like a busy city or anything where anyone thought that Derek wouldn't be okay just simply walking down the street. Now, a couple hours later at around 11 a.m., there was a storm, a thunderstorm that had rolled in to the town and Doreen ended up rushing over to the park to pick Derek up and bring him back home. 
So Doreen walks over to the park and she's talking to one of the counselors there. And that is when she learns that Derek actually never made it to the park that day. Now, when Doreen knew this, she immediately knew that something was incredibly wrong. Derek was not the type of person that was just going to walk off and wander. He knew that he was supposed to go to the park that day. And it was almost something that he wanted to prove to his mom that he could do because Doreen was doubting it herself, whether or not she should allow Derek to do this. It was almost like, no mom, I got this. Like, I'm going to show you that I can go down the street. So when Doreen found out that he never made it, the panic immediately set in and she called 911 to file a missing persons report. And police really wasted no time when it came to looking for Derek. They hit the ground running and so did the rest of the community. This town, like I said, had a population of about a thousand people and news like a missing child was definitely something that traveled quickly and everyone was doing their best to try and find Derek. Now, in the beginning, there were about two different theories that police thought were possibilities in regards to what had happened to Derek. The first being they thought that it was possible that Derek could have been the victim of a hit and run. Or the second theory was that Derek was abducted by a stranger, and they thought that it was possible that this stranger could have been someone from out of town, someone who didn't live in the community. And those were the two theories that police were really starting out with and thought that that's where this investigation was leading them. That was until about five hours into the investigation when Derek's body was discovered. Derek was found several yards away from the park in a wooded area. It was clear to police that just by looking at Derek, he had suffered severe injuries. Derek was found with several large rocks placed on top of his head. He was completely undressed and also had external injuries all over his body. The autopsy report revealed that Derek's cause of death was blunt force trauma to the head as well as asphyxiation. The medical examiner was also able to conclude that Derek had been sodomized with a tree branch. Along with that, she was able to figure out that the Kool-Aid that Derek had packed in his lunchbox with him that day had been removed from the lunchbox and poured all over his external injuries, like his cuts and, you know, different things like that. The cuts that were caused by the large rocks, the Kool-Aid was just poured all over him. Now, when police saw Derek's body, they were able to figure out that Derek's body was almost staged in a way. Derek was laying with his hands above his head, and they were able to see that Derek's right shoe was placed next to his left hand, and his left shoe was placed next to his right hand. So at this point, police really just had more questions than answers. They have this four-year-old boy that had clearly been tortured and they had nowhere to begin and no clue where to begin with finding the killer in this investigation. And again, they figured that the killer was someone that Derek did not know. Now, it's not very clear why they thought that. However, that was a theory that they were sticking with in the beginning. But things began to change pretty quickly in this case. Four days after Derek's murder, a 13-year-old boy named Eric Smith had walked into the police department and asked if he could be of any help in the investigation. So he ends up sitting down with detectives and police start asking him, you know, questions because Eric and Derek 
kind of knew each other. They were more so acquaintances. They knew of each other, especially Eric with Derek. Eric was 13 years old, like I said, and we know that Derek was four years old and they both attended this same summer camp. Now, initially, Eric had told police that he never saw Derek that day, but his story quickly changed. He told police that he was actually sent home from this summer camp that day. He was told to go home because he was exhibiting bad behavior. And so they basically just dismissed him from the summer camp. Now, Eric said that on his bike ride home, Eric said that he remembers seeing Derek walking across the open field heading towards the park where this camp was. Now, when police were told this by Eric, their red flags in their head immediately started to go off because Eric was now basically placing himself at the crime scene because Derek's body was found pretty much right where this open field was, just several yards into the woods. So police started questioning him a little bit more and were asking Eric if he remembered what Derek was wearing. And Eric was pretty much able to describe perfectly what Derek was wearing that day. Eric told police that he remembered that Derek had a lunchbox, but it was at this point in the conversation that Eric began to get pretty emotional and police didn't really know why. He started to get teary-eyed, he got a little flustered, and he's sitting in this chair across from detectives and he starts hunching over and he balls his hands up into a fist and pulls them up to his head and starts shaking them, like vibrating them almost. And he just says under his breath, like, you think I killed him, don't you? And at first, police didn't know what to think here because although they thought it was very strange that Eric was, you know, almost inserting himself into the investigation, he places himself at the crime scene, police were more so under the assumption when it came to Eric that it was possible not that Eric was the killer, but that he could have potentially seen something or he could have potentially been traumatized by, you know, seeing something or maybe someone threatened him not to say anything. There were a bunch of different scenarios that were running through police's head for the most part being because they didn't believe that a 13-year-old boy could do something like this. Imagine an app designed to make you use it less. Seems a little counterproductive, right? Well, apartments.com's instant alert feature works exactly that way. Instead of scanning rental listings a million times a day, simply set and forget your search to whatever you're looking for in a place and let apartments.com do the rest. From pet-friendly apartments to balconies to in-unit ACs, apartments.com's powerful search tools let you know when the perfect combination of features you're seeking is listed. So you don't have to power through rental descriptions one by one. With more rental listings than anywhere else, apartments Apartments.com's instant alerts mean that you can spend less time looking for the perfect place and more time on just doing you. Apartments.com, the place to find a place. So at this point in the interview, Eric decides that he needs to take a break and step away. His father was also at the police station and his dad ends up bringing him a cup of red Kool-Aid. So his dad brings him this Kool-Aid and Eric sits back down to continue the conversation with authorities. And right when they get into the beginning of the second half of this conversation, Eric picks up the Kool-Aid cup and throws it onto 
the ground. Now, police knew, obviously, as I have told you as well, that Derek had read Kool-Aid that day and thought again that Eric was triggered by the red Kool-Aid. But again, not triggered in the fact that he could have been the killer, but triggered in the fact that he had to have known something. He must be being threatened or intimidated, or he saw something he wasn't supposed to see, and he's getting overwhelmed. So police decide to end the interview right then and there. They knew that they really weren't going to get anywhere else in that time frame. And they asked Eric the following day to get on his bike and ride them over to where he said he saw Derek in the open field. So Eric gets on his bike, he brings police over, and pretty automatically, police start to realize that there was no way from where Eric said that he was standing to where Eric said that Derek was standing, that Eric would have been able to remember all of the details that he was explaining to police. So what color his socks were and his shoes and what kind of lunchbox he had. Like there was just no way that he would have been able to remember all of those details because Derek was pretty much all the way across the field at that point from what Eric was telling them. Something that police also noticed while this was all happening was that Eric seemed very happy. He seemed almost bubbly and giddy at the fact that he got to bring police over to this open field and he was able to talk to them about the investigation Pretty much all the detectives that have come forward and talked about this case have said that Eric was happy. He was, you know, laughing and, you know, smiling when riding his bike over. He felt almost a sense of power and importance that he could assist police in some way. So then we fast forward a week after Derek was killed. And this is when Eric begins to unravel. Eric's mom is pretty much begging him at this point. You know, we know that you know something more. You have to know more than you're saying. So why don't you tell police what you know? Again, at this point, everyone's just thinking that Eric is withholding information about something he saw, not anything he did. But when they sat down with authorities, Eric hung his head and said, quote, I'm sorry, mom. I'm sorry. I killed that little boy. So who is Eric Smith? I feel like that's what we need to talk about next to give you an idea of who we're actually talking about here. Eric Smith was born on January 22nd, 1980 in Stoben County, New York to his mother, Tammy. Eric grew up in a neighboring town to Derek with his mom, stepfather, Ted, and sister, Stacy. Eric liked spending his time hanging out with his grandparents named Red and Eddie, and he liked swimming. And his family describes him as always really wanting to be the center of attention. He was the kind of kid that would act out to get your attention and he would, you know, try and make you laugh. He would kind of go the extra mile to kind of validate him in that way. So if you're not watching me on YouTube, meaning you don't see the pictures, Eric has bright red hair and freckles and big, big glasses. So these three things combined really made him an easy target for the kids at school. Eric was teased and bullied and tormented a lot by the kids in his school, and it was really hard for him to make friends, and he was oftentimes seen biking around the town for hours just by himself. He spent a lot of time alone or with his family. Like I said, he didn't really have a lot of friends, and the kids at school just tormented him. Now, regardless of the behaviors that 
you know, Eric was exhibiting, like always wanting to be the center of attention or being bullied or things like that. No one ever really equates that automatically to murder, especially your own family. So Eric's parents were devastated when this all came out, as well as his grandparents. They say it was the worst day of their lives when Eric confessed because they were just shocked. They were confused. They couldn't believe it. They didn't understand why. Why a 13-year-old boy would have so much anger to torture and murder a four-year-old. Now, in New York, murder is actually the one crime where a 13-year-old can be tried as an adult. And that's exactly what happened. Eric was tried as an adult and the case went to trial. Now the defense really played into the idea that Eric suffered from a mental health condition. And during the trial, his mom, Tammy, said that Eric had phases where he would throw temper tantrums and would bang his head on the floor and have moments of intense rage. He would also torment his mom by calling her stupid and just say that she was a nobody and that she was never going to amount to any Anything. Which just as a side note, I can't even fathom saying that to my mom now. Like that is just not, or not even my mom, just let alone any person. I don't think I could ever say that to any human being, but thinking about doing that to my mother and then thinking about doing that at the age of 13 is just baffling to me. But I digress. So he would tell her those types of things. And a psychiatrist also took the stand in the trial for the defense and said that he had diagnosed Eric with something called intermittent explosive disorder. He continued to say that this specific disorder is diagnosed to people who claim that they feel as if they're going to explode, but after this rage is passed, they kind of come back down to reality a little bit and they can appear to be quote unquote normal. Again, that's how he described it. However, the prosecution also brought in a psychiatrist and said that this specific disorder, not only is it extremely rare just on its own, it is also rarely diagnosed to anyone in Eric's age group. Now, does that mean it's impossible? No, but it does mean that she disagreed with that finding that the original psychiatrist had. So you kind of have two psychiatrists going head to head. Now, there were also a lot of questions regarding Eric and the potential of him having been abused at home. A lot of people wondered if Eric's behavior was a result of him being either physically or sexually abused at home because it is very rare, not only for a 13-year-old child to kill, but for a 13-year-old child to kill in such a brutal and sexual way way. Now, Eric from the beginning denied ever having experienced any abuse from anyone in his family, his mom, his stepfather, anyone. He said physical, sexual, it just, it never happened. But those questions began to arise again when Eric's sister, Stacy came forward and claimed that she had actually been sexually abused by their stepfather. So it brought up the question again of, okay, is Eric just lying? So after the trial was completed on August 16th of 1994, Eric was convicted and found guilty of second degree murder, and he was sentenced to nine years to life in prison. And that was the maximum sentence for a juvenile. So he got the harshest sentence that he could have gotten. And once this sentence was read, Eric's parents 
were devastated because they were actually convinced that Eric was mentally ill and that that was why this had happened. And they felt like he wasn't getting any leniency for that and he wasn't getting any help for that. But pretty much everyone else, you know, the Roby family and the media and everyone in the public, because this case had been blasted everywhere, most people were very pleased with this sentencing because it meant that Derek was getting justice. And Eric committed a horrifically brutal murder, so a lot of people thought that prison was the best place for him. But again, Eric was only 13 years old. Like, take a second and think about what you were doing when you were 13, because Eric was only nine years older than Derek when he decided to commit something this heinous. And, you know, the big question here was why? Why did Eric do this? And in the beginning, when talking to authorities, Eric said that he was just angry. He was angry that he was being sent home from summer camp. He saw Derek and he wanted to take his anger out on someone else. And like I mentioned in the beginning, one thing that the authorities seemed to be able to agree on was the fact that Eric enjoyed the process of what he did, which also raises a very serious question of, is this something that Eric would do again? Now, while he was in prison in the beginning of his sentence, Eric wrote an apology letter to Derek's parents, Dale and Doreen, and the letter was read by him and broadcasted on television. An excerpt from that letter says, quote, I know my actions have caused a terrible loss in the Roby family, and for that, I am truly sorry. I've tried to think as much as possible about what Derek will never experience. His 16th birthday, Christmas, anytime, owning his own house, graduating, going to college, getting married, his first child. If I could go back in time, I would switch places with Derek and endure all the pain that I've caused him. If it meant that he could go on living, I'd switch places, but I can't, end quote. Now, in that letter, he also talks about how he can't fathom spending the rest of his life in jail and behind steel metal bars and razor wire and walls. That's Those were his words of how he described it. He said that he couldn't fathom staying in prison for the rest of his life. Now, in 2002, so about eight years after Eric was first sentenced, Eric was actually eligible for his first parole hearing, believe it or not, since his conviction. And this parole was denied. But two years later, he applied for parole again when he was 24 years old. Now, during this hearing, Eric was asked questions by the parole board. They asked questions like, while Eric was strangling Derek, did it give him a good feeling? And Eric actually told the parole board that while he was strangling Derek, in that moment, it made him feel good. Now, when asked why he thought it felt good to him, he said, quote, because instead of being hurt, I was hurting somebody else. Growing up, I have always been picked on, disrespected, and made fun of, end quote. Along with that, the question of if he had not told anyone what he did, this brings us back to the question that I had mentioned earlier. If Eric never confessed, would he have done this again? And Eric replied, Yes. Now, after that, and probably to no surprise, his parole was denied in 2004. Now, in 2009, Eric did an interview right before his fifth parole hearing. Now, in this interview, he said that his anger was actually never directed towards Derek, but instead directed towards all of the people who used to pick on him. He said, quote, when I was torturing and killing Derek, that's what I saw in my head. 
There's not a day that goes by in some way, shape, or form that I'm forced to remember what I did, end quote. In 2010, Eric was denied parole for a fifth time. And as you can imagine, this was taking a complete mental toll on the Roby family because this wasn't just affecting Eric. This was affecting Derek's parents who every couple years had to live with the anxiety of is Eric going to be released? And it's a vicious cycle every couple years that they have to go. And they have to deal with the fact that the person who brutally murdered their son is trying to get out on parole. And again, like I said, that cycle happens every few years. But this then brings us to October 5th of 2001. Eric went before the parole board for his 11th time. During this parole hearing, he revealed that he was actually engaged and that his fiance is studying to be a lawyer. She originally contacted him to know more about the juvenile justice system, and over time, they just kept talking and fell in love. And it was after this hearing that Eric was finally granted parole. A lot of people have justified this by coming forward and saying that, you know, Eric can only say that he's changed so many times. He's gone through countless hours of therapy and different rehabilitation courses while inside prison, so there really is only one way to see if he's actually changed. Now, Dale remembers being at work when he heard about Eric's release, and he remembers calling Doreen and sharing the news with her, and it was their worst nightmare that had come true, that Eric was finally being released. And once this news came out into the public, you can imagine the public's uproar about this. Everyone was furious. And a lot of people were very frustrated because they didn't want Derek's legacy to die. They didn't want the media's attention to be on Eric. And there were also a lot of people that were worried about what was going to happen when he was released. Many of the Savona residents were worried that he was going to be able to come back into their town and no one wanted that, absolutely no one. And his parole release ended up being delayed for several months because of that, because the board was looking for housing for him because they were not going to allow him to go back to Savona either. So it delayed for a couple months until ultimately they found him housing in Queens, New York, which is about 200 miles away from Savona. Then on February 1st of 2022, so this year, when Eric was 42 years old, he was released from prison. Now, I watched a 48 Hours documentary on this case in particular, and in it, Doreen said that when Eric was released, it was also a sense of release for her and her husband, Dale. And what she meant by that is that she didn't have to worry anymore in the sense of the cycles of parole and is he going to get out and is he going to apply for parole again and is he going to get it or is he not and then they have to do it a couple years later. Eric was never going to stop applying for parole until he got out. That was just never going to happen. So in a sense, Eric being released was also Derek's parents having a release and they said that they don't want to go through that cycle anymore and when Eric was released, it felt like the true healing for them could begin and that they could really start a new chapter of their lives. 
So this is where I bring the question to you guys. I mentioned in the beginning of this case that there was a very big debate on whether or not Eric should be released or not. There are some people that say yes, and there are some people that say no. Some people believe that Eric was 13 years old when he committed this act, and now he's 42. And that's plenty of time for someone to have, you know, gotten their act together and changed for the better and moved on with their lives without ever harming someone again. But then there's the flip side of that of, okay, he was 13 years old when he committed something so horrific. Who's to say now that he's 42 and is an adult that he won't do the same thing? But like I said, I'm really interested to hear what you guys have to say. I really don't know where I fall in this. I guess I can see both sides to the argument. So with that being said, you guys, let me know in the comments, DM me on Instagram. But with that being said, you guys, that is all for me today. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Killer Instinct. If you're new here, hi, my name is Savannah and I'm your host of Killer Instinct. Make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button. That way you never miss an episode. We post weekly on the podcast every Wednesday and every Wednesday on YouTube as well. It is Killer Instinct Wednesdays over here. So I will see you next week with a brand new case. And until then, stay safe. Bye guys. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. To serve others in ways that promote human flourishing and create a ripple effect of transformation for generations to come, find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.